So Matthew chapter 6 and starting at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, now, there are many things of which human beings are quite simply incapable. I'm sorry to start on such a negative note. But I guess it is one of the key life lessons that any parent or teacher worth their salt should teach their child. You know, you can't live forever. We're bound by time. We can't fly or float. We're bound by gravity. We can't walk on water or in fire or on quicksand. We can't actually have whatever we want, live wherever we want, or do whatever we want. We're bound in so many different ways, geographically, morally, spatially, and so forth. One of our favorite family films is the film about Eddie the Eagle. It's, it's a great watch if you haven't seen it. It follows the path to international ridicule of a man who really thought he could fly with a pair of skis on. And Eddie had to learn that there are some things that human beings are quite simply incapable of doing. He became famous in the process. This makes for careful consideration, especially since we live in a world where there appear to be so many seemingly impenetrable barriers through which human beings have broken. 
who hasn't heard the 21st century cry, don't let the world tell you what you can and can't do, be you, be the best version of you, attempt the impossible. But there are some things that men and women cannot do. And we're not free economically or temporally, morally, spatially. Many of us will know Alan Bright. He served on the team here for a number of years. He's two months younger than I am, and I always refer to him as old man. His birthday is the 30th of March. And if you start reading uh, the Psalms, one Psalm a day, right the way through to the 30th of March, you end up on Psalm 90. That is Alan's psalm. And so this week on the 30th of March, I sent him this quote, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, that yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. And with other such words, I encouraged him. But I also included, I also included verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You realize that we're going to die. You're not going to last forever. You can't live forever. David Brooks, a New York colonist, the mantra of modern 21st century middle class is that you should be true to yourself, follow your passion, that your future is limitless, is complete garbage. Well, now, today is a lesson in learning our limitations, if I may put it like that. And I want to suggest that far from being a negative lesson of life-denying spoil-sportism, it is actually profoundly liberating. Grasp this life lesson, and it will free each one of us to live out our full, eternal potential. So what is the thing that we cannot do? Verse 24 of our reading. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I know that even as I say that, as I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, one or two people will be saying to themselves, you know, I, I really think I can. No, we don't go there. You can't do that. Stop it. So then with apologies to Tom Cruise, first point, mission impossible. And the verse comes, verse 24, at the end of six verses we've been considering over the last three weeks. And we've had the first three verses, don't lay up treasures on earth, moth and rust destroy, lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal where your treasure is there, your heart will be also Rotten riches, safe savings, treasure that tethers. And then we've looked at our eyesight. So we've been from the financial advisor, the Lord Jesus, the best financial advisor the world has ever known. There's no kind of downside to Jesus' investment. No small print. And we've gone then to the optician, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. How is our eyesight? Is it divided or single? Single eyesight, 2020 vision. And this week we've got just one verse and we're in the employment market. And all the way through this verse, Jesus is stressing our vital negative life lesson. Just look at it up there at the front end of the verse with the negative. No one. Now, no one makes this absolute. That word, no one. It's exclusive. In fact, it's exclusively exclusive. No one is in the set marked no one. 
Uh, No one is the precise opposite of everyone. Jesus might have said, everyone can only serve one master. He didn't. He said, no one can serve two masters. And so if we think that somehow we can serve two masters, then not only are we suggesting that we know better than Jesus Christ, but we also think that we're the only person in a whole wide world who is able to do such a thing. Now, that's quite the exception. And then take a look at the word able or can. No one can. It's from the word we get our word dynamite, dunamis. No one has the power to. We don't have the human facility to do it. It's beyond us. We can't. It's out of the realms of human capacity. Serving two masters, it's like flying unaided or walking on water or surviving on the surface of the moon unaided or living within the core of an active volcano. You just, you just can't do it. No one is able. Now, once again, at this stage, there'll be one or two people who are saying, you know, I think William's slightly overstating things here. You know, I I think I can do this. And that's because we haven't looked at the next part of the verse. I think our problem, perhaps, with this sentence comes from a wrong understanding of who Jesus is and perhaps a wrong understanding of who God is and therefore a flawed understanding of the Christian faith. That's quite a thing to suggest, but... The word serve and the word master both come from the world of first century slavery. And that first century slavery was very different to the world of 19th century slavery, but it was nonetheless slavery and therefore totally different from the world of 21st century employment. So when Jesus says no one can serve two masters, he isn't talking about two clients or two 21st century bosses for someone who has a mixed portfolio of interests. Or he's not speaking about a plumber or a builder or a contract worker who rushes around from one individual to another, or even an employee in a a contractual arrangement governed by employment law, workers' rights, and HR departments. No, the word is lord, the word is master, the word is owner. And single ownership is the essence of the arrangement. And full-time service is what is being considered. And the person concerned is 24-7 at disposal of the Lord in question. No questions asked, no legal rights, no recourse to a complaints procedure. Ah, yeah, we can juggle two clients, and we can play off one persistent employer against another, but we cannot belong to two owners. And the understanding behind this, of course, is fundamental to the Christian faith that there is only one God and that this God is the Lord of the whole universe and that as creator of all and our redeemer, not only do we belong to him once because he made us and everything, but we belong to him a second time because he redeemed us. We are his twice over. We we are owned lock, stock, and barrel by Jesus Christ, if we have turned to follow him. We've surrendered our rights to him. We've given over our freedom to Jesus. We have yielded all of our personal autonomy to Jesus Christ. No one can serve two masters. 
So the Greco-Roman pantheon held that there were multiple gods and one kind of split oneself between them to try and keep everybody happy. Do you remember when Paul in Athens in Acts 17 turns up and the thing that irritates him is that inscription to an unknown God? That's called covering your bases. You know, I want to keep everybody happy. And the Hindu mythological view is that there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of different gods, all of whom need to be kept juggled, as it were. But in the Christian faith, there's no such spiritual schizophrenia The truth of the matter is that there's only one God. He's Lord of all. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. No one can serve two masters. Jesus is introduced at the start of the gospel as God the Son, the Son of God, and Jesus declares at the end of the gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, To attempt to serve with a little part of me some other God than Jesus Christ, to hold some corner of some mountain field in which I have my own little piece of retained personal autonomy, it's a fundamental denial of what it means to be Christian. In fact, if I think I can serve God and money, am I, am I Christian? No one can serve two masters. So we got the negative Uh, We've got the word can, we've got the understanding of the word master, and that, I think, helps explain the strength of the language. Did you notice that as we read it in verse 24? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And if you look up the original use of each of those words, love, agape, it's the deepest form of love, and hatred is to detest, to denounce, To be devoted is to cling to, to pay attention to, to adore, and to despise is to scorn, to look down on, to show it by active insult. And I think once we've got a right understanding of master, we can understand why you would hate one and love the other, ultimately, if you were trying to do this impossible splits. You know, if one's owned absolutely by one person, one cannot be owned absolutely by another. If one has two complete owners, one will be torn in two different directions. So I haven't watched a period drama for quite some time. I'm told the BBC is currently butchering great expectations. But uh, the last time I watched some, one of these things was uh, the old Downton Abbey, which some may be familiar with. And there's a butler. Is his name Carson, I think, in Downton Abbey? I think that's his name. And just imagine for a moment that there was a next-door estate to the Downton Abbey estate at Highclere. There is, actually. But let's imagine it's called Up Street Apartment. And imagine that the owner of Upstreet Apartment decided that actually they were going to employ Carson as their butler full-time as well. And Carson agreed to this arrangement, and it would be intolerable. Lord Grantham of Downton Abbey. Uh, Carson, ask the upstairs maid to make up the fires, would you? 
Lady jumped up of Upstreet apartment. Would you have my tea brought to me in my room? And already he's looking in two directions. And then, Lord Grantham, please arrange for the guests to be met at the station at eight o'clock this evening. I'd like you to be there personally. They're most important. And then Lady jumped up. There's a dinner party I've arranged at eight o'clock. It's most important that you're there in attendance. And it's an impossibility. And Carson will end up being devoted to one and hating the other. Of course he would. It would be utterly miserable. And then there's the final negative. You have the opening negative at the start of the verse. You have the word can, is able. The concept of ownership, the language of hatred and love. And then the final, you cannot serve both God and money. It's impossible. We just don't go there. Stop it. That's not Christian discipleship. Ah, says somebody, but I keep a portfolio of employment options on the go all the time. I'm sure I can serve. No, 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 no. We we just don't go there. Ah, says somebody, well, I managed to juggle my family and an intensely stretching job in in some sort of equilibrium. I'm sure I can serve. No, 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 we don't go there. You can't do it. No, but I've, I've got the money bit in check. I, I really think I've got it under control in a little box and I can serve it. Nope, nope. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I've only got two points. Really, there's, to be honest, only one point, but I thought I'd divide it up to make it a little bit easier. But there are only kind of two sub-points under this one point, and under each sub-point, there is a, a, there, sorry, there are a couple of observations. Here's one observation for us to chew on, and that's on possessions. Have you noticed how it's almost as if the Lord Jesus personifies possessions? How can things that are inanimate stuff be personified? Now, I don't think I've really got the answer to this. So this is the sort of thing in question time. You might like to throw in the answer for us, but put it as a question, and then we won't think you're trying to be, you know, too clever. Just could it be that? Something like that. But uh, So I would value it. I guess, does it have to do with God and his sole right to sovereign ownership and me and my attachment to these things? The moment I say there's a little corner of my life, which is mine and mine alone, that little corner becomes a rival to the other sole rightful owner. It's actually what the Bible calls idolatry. Now, John Stott has an absolutely outstanding little commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that mine, I'm afraid, has completely fallen to bits, as you can see, and so I've just stapled pages together to try and retain it as some sort of book. You're writing to the publishers, but as it was bought in 1980 something, that I think would be a little demanding if I were to do that. Anyway, listen to what he says. Some people blandly assure us that it's perfectly possible to serve two masters simultaneously. They manage it very nicely themselves. Several possible arrangements and adjustments appeal. Either they serve God on Sundays and mammon on weekdays. God with their lips, mammon with their hearts. God in appearance, mammon in reality. God with half the being, mammon with the other half. But single ownership and full-time service are of the essence of slavery. To try to share God with other loyalties 
is to have opted for idolatry. And that, of course, closes off the moderation loophole. Oh, it's okay if I serve my possessions for 15, 10, or 5%. No, no, we don't go there. That's idolatry. You cannot serve God and mammon. But the second observation under this first Mission Impossible point is this. Do you know, it's actually profoundly damaging to bring up a child to think that the future is limitless. It's, I mean, is it close? I'm cautious using this word. It's, it's enslaving, certainly. To bring up a child to think that they can do everything, achieve anything, that there are no boundaries, no limits. Oh, it sounds really cool, doesn't it? It's utterly enslaving the poor wretch. Either they will have an endless sense of failure and inadequacy, or the inordinate pride and insufferable superiority that we find in the secularist elite. Poor child. They'll be like that circus act, desperately rushing around trying to spin plates and failing. Okay, well, I'm part of a small Bible study that works across two um, banks here in the city. The study has about 20 or 30 members. We meet online and in person, and we study what I'm about to teach uh, from a pulpit somewhere or other. It's kind of cheating, really, because they very kindly write the sermon for me, which is marvelous. And we were looking at this passage, and one of the senior guys in the group said this. He said, We think that we come to a clearing in the woods and that there are multiple paths. This verse tells us that we've entered through a narrow door, we're on a narrow path, and there's a fork in the road. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the second point, the beautiful decision, I thought hard about quite what I should call it. Liberating would be equally good. Wise, life-enhancing would be equally good. But there is a decision, isn't there? And I've also pondered where we should go to show us that taking the decision to serve the Lord as our master rather than possessions would be a simply beautiful and wonderful thing to do. But in reality, the answer is right here in the six verses that we're studying and here within the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to go very far to see the wisdom of serving the Lord Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The word possessions is mammon. It's literally that in which we place our trust. And the whole point Jesus has been making throughout the six verses right from the get-go is that things matter and stuff simply cannot bear our weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. So, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Stuff is not durable. Stuff is expendable. Put our weight on those retirement plans and ill health will put an end to that. Put our weight on that bucket list of life experiences and COVID or a war in Ukraine will put an end to that. 
Put our weight on a new iPhone or an upgrade in the kind of car we drive or getting an invitation to every single uh, party or whatever it happens to be and moth and, moth and rust will put an end to that. And that's before we turn to think of the pharaohs who couldn't take their stuff with them. And anyway, none of these things truly satisfy. There's more that matters than matter. Stuff does not satisfy. I haven't brought Robbie Williams's biography, and I read it on holiday a number of years ago. It's called Feel. It doesn't take a lot of reading, I have to say, but it was a good holiday read. How does it feel to be Robbie Williams when you've absolutely made it? Do you know how it feels to be Robbie Williams in his words? Empty. Many of us will never have heard of David Gilmour. That's because we haven't been properly educated. David Gilmour was one of the members of Pink Floyd, one of the greatest bands that has ever existed. This is what David Gilmour has to say. You don't know what you're in it for anymore once you've achieved success. You are in it to achieve massive success, get rich and famous, and all these other things that go along with it. And when they're all done, you're going... Why? What next? Obviously, they don't last. One of my most vivid memories was the first city memorial service I ever took shortly after becoming rector here. The guy had made it, aged 50. He'd bought his luxury villa in Portugal right on the edge of the golf course. He was going to spend the next 30, 40 years walking to the end of the garden in his luxury villa to the first tee with his friends and family. And they found him dead on the kitchen floor. So it's quite clear that serving stuff is a stupid thing to do. But then it's also so clear that giving myself wholly, unreservedly to the Lord Jesus is the most wonderful and beautiful thing to do. I mean, think about it for just a second. In terms of durability, here we are, over 2,000 years later, and we've spent three weeks looking at just six sentences of Jesus' teaching, which literally billions of others have built their lives on over the last 2,000 years. Durability. And that's before we begin to think about what we remember, Palm Sunday today, the selfless service of the Lord Jesus, and what a joy it is to surrender to the selfless servant. And before we get to Good Friday and the loving sacrifice that he should love us enough to open up eternity for us through his death on the cross, and a week today, the resurrection, that he has conquered death. So a couple of observations under this beautiful decision point, and then we're done. Observation number one, on naivety and deception. You know, we're actually talking about the oldest lie in the book, Genesis chapter 3. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll be really free if only you will come and serve stuff instead of the creator. It's the oldest lie in the book. 
Have you ever watched a spider weaving her web? I, I Probably you haven't. That's because your father is so good at doing the housework that you don't have spiders in your house. But you know, if you ever you know, neglect the housework for a while, there'll be spiders there. Watch the spider weave her web. It's very fascinating. And then if you sit for long enough, it's the kind of thing you only do you know, um, when you're not rushing around serving all sorts of things. But if you sit for long enough, you'll see a hapless fly and they'll get one limb and then another and then they're horribly entangled. And stuff is just like that, this oldest lie in the book. How naive to think that I'll be free if I serve stuff. Nobody is really free. And so the second observation on Christian faith and liberty, the decision of surrender to the Lord Jesus comes to men and women who are already in enslaved servitude. We're not free economically, we're not free temporally, geographically, morally, we're not free. You know, that's Psalm 90 we talked about. It's a fascinating psalm because over and again, the psalmist talks about the wrath of God that brings a person's life to an end. We're not free temporally. God has removed from all humanity the possibility of eternal life apart from the Lord Jesus. And so the Christian faith and liberty, it's not a commitment to step outside of the bondage that is all of humanity's into unregulated anarchy. It it, it is rather a commitment to surrender ourselves to a new master, a new lord, a new service. And once in service of this new master, we will find ourselves genuinely free to live. Os Guinness, the American writer, had this to say in his book, A Free People's Suicide. It's about the suicidal decision of Americans to reject faith in Jesus. He says this, order without freedom may be a manacle. Order without freedom, a manacle. Freedom without order is a mirage. And so the Christian disciple, you know, we surrender our autonomy. We surrender self-rule when we come to Jesus. It's not a kind of, oh yeah, a little bit of an optional thing that I do from time to time. No, if we think that, then we're not really understanding the Christian faith. Am I really Christian? That's what I think. Now, the Christian faith is wholesale surrender. It's a beautiful decision. And the Christian disciple who surrenders autonomy is the Christian disciple who has been gifted liberty to break free from the bondage of death, to serve the Lord Jesus, which is perfect freedom. Conclusion. Well, it all has to do with possessions in its context. I quoted David Cook a couple of weeks ago. When David Cook was speaking on this passage from this pulpit, he asked the question, when was the last time we taught our savings a lesson? 
It's a good question. I don't serve you. You don't rule me. Now, the encouragement is not to plunge ourselves into penury so that we become dependent on the church. No, we've looked at that, and that's not right, 1 Timothy chapter 5. We shouldn't do that. But, but the question is, who really rules? There'll be a number of church leaders who listen to this talk, no doubt. It's always been my aim, and the treasurer of 30 years is sitting in front of me. He perhaps looks two decades older than he really is. I don't know, because of my aim over the last 30 years. It's always been my aim that we should run a deficit every year at St. Helens. It's good for our savings. Actually, it'll make us put our money somewhere where it matters and lasts. It's good for our eyesight, in fact, and it's good to remind us who we really serve. I was asked this week to make the whole thing a little bit more personal. Oh, we're so British. I don't think it's that we're British, but we seem to be very reluctant to talk about money with one another. And personally, for me, we've decided to up our giving by 10%. I think it's very good for us, good for our savings, good for our eyesight, good to remind us as a family who we really serve. And to give away a small percentage of our savings? Why not? There is only one Lord. It all belongs to him. The Christian faith is full-time service. It's not that Gwilym is a full-time Christian worker. I hate that phrase. We're all full-time Christian workers. We belong to him, lock, stock, and barrel. And we can't serve Two masters, his service, is perfect freedom. I'm going to lead us in prayer. We thank you, our Father, you so loved the world that you gave your only son to break us out of slavery. We acknowledge our failure to see this clearly and ask that you would forgive us for our personal idolatries. Please help us to see Jesus more clearly and to serve him more wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so firstly, William, what do you think it looks like to um, serve money? Um, is there a line to be drawn between using money sensibly and it being our master? I don't think I want to answer that question for you, really. I think I'm very sorry. <laughs> it's not sorry. for me. <laughs> no, no, I just, I, I think it, it will be, you know, it could, could be very different for all of us. Um, and therefore, I just, I want to encourage us to go back on our knees, perhaps to talk to some friends um, and to, to think about it. Have I made this? If my pursuit of and it's not just money, it's that in which I put my trust, my reputation, my friendship group, being in the social circle, fear of missing out. If that is taking me away from Christian service and I'm not seeing it as all serving him 24-7, then it is dangerous, I think. 
And that may, may, may require, you know, really quite radical steps of saying, okay, well, this, I will let go of this ambition. And um, following up on that, um, I love the Lord Jesus and I seek to serve him, but I find in my heart evidence of a love for money. So how do I practically address this? Yeah, thank you, yes. Join the club. I mean, surely that is all of us. And I think that is the, the battle of the Christian life, isn't it? On our needs, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And it may be that you take some, whoever this individual is, that we take personal steps of Christian discipline driven by love. I mean, I love it that that's how the question begins. I love mm. the Lord Jesus. Well, praise the Lord for that. But, um, you know, I find this. Well, then, in any other area, you take steps of Christian discipline. I hope you do when it comes to any other area, gossip um, and anything else like that, um, immorality of one form or another, excess alcohol, food, whatever it happens to be. I hope we are living, seeking to live a disciplined life. That's not slavery. That's freedom. And when it comes to the money side, that's why I think David Cook was really helpful. And again, you know, we've got to bear in mind that we are encouraged not to impoverish ourselves. And actually, money itself is not evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And the rich in 1 Timothy 6 are not told, actually, to give everything away. They're to be generous in good works. So I... I think, you know, Jesus isn't quite the kind of socialist we might want him to be. He's not a capitalist. But anyway, there we go. But so there will be areas where Christian discipline comes in and say, okay, yes, well, I'm going to limit myself in this area as a deliberate or even root this area out as a deliberate Christian discipline driven by love for the Lord Jesus. I'm not enslaved by it. I hope that's helpful. And there's a question pushing a bit further on freedom here, um, just to say a bit more. So uh, why is surrendering your life to Jesus freedom? Um, isn't it slavery to Jesus? It is. We yeah, free. well, exactly. I tried to suggest that it is. It, otherwise, otherwise, the two masters thing doesn't work. And, and in fact, isn't that how Paul refers to it in Romans 6? That, yes, we have a new master. Um, but... Um, Jesus is very clear, isn't he? For, um, it's the truth that will set you free in John 8. And we are actually liberated to be truly human. So it's not untrammeled uh, anarchy when we come to Jesus. It's coming under the rule of Jesus who then liberates us from all these horrible slave masters to be genuinely free. One of the first ever talks I gave, and I shudder to think what, what it was actually like to sit on the receiving end of it, but um, I kind of pictured, if I remember rightly, a train going along a set of rails and looking at the fields to left and right. We were speaking to teenagers, you know, and how lovely the fields look over on the left, and there's a mountain, and, you know, the train had, you know, it was, an, it was suddenly given a personality. I think we called him Thomas, probably, although it may have been the days before Thomas, I can't remember. And he said, oh, I'm going to jump off the tracks. And he went for a short while, and 
suddenly discovered that actually, you know, trains don't work like that. And he was hopelessly, and you got him, don't need to go into it, bogged in. So I went on for a long time about this, as you can imagine. But then he was put back on the tracks, and now he's free. And I think that is the, 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 the great deception and naive, naivety around it, the lie that we will somehow be free when we come under this slave master. So actually we come back under the rule of Jesus and we are truly free to be. And I say, I said it in the talk, um, to fulfill our eternal potential, which is truly limitless. Now, there are a few questions that are a bit more practical in flavor, um, so to do with how you might think about giving. Um, first of all, when you talk about giving, kind of what do you mean, uh, giving to church? Um, is it okay to give to causes we particularly have a heart for, um, such as supporting pregnant women in crisis um, in this question? Uh, what, do, what do you think we're thinking about when we think about generosity and giving? Yeah, thank you very, very much. Well, I think at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. And we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, we pray that because we realize that any other kingdom is heading in a handcart to hell. That there is no kingdom apart from the sole rule and the beautiful uh, dominion of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, it's good to love our neighbor and to do good things for our neighbor. But if we haven't got as our fundamental concern in the way we're deploying our resources, people coming into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you know, how, are we, how is our Christian faith actually informing our financial organization? I mean, to put it more crudely, There'll be stack loads of people who will help a London child and all that sort of stuff, and they will raise millions from the non-Christian world. There's only one sort of person that's going to give to helping others see that Jesus Christ is king. Now, I don't mean in that that you know, we're not going to give money to help people. I mean, we heard of the work at Tamar. Was it last week or was it Sunday evening? I can't remember. The work working amongst the sex workers in the city to help them hear the gospel and be brought out of this appalling, abusive world in which they live. Or, or the prison work that we support here. Yeah, but behind the prison work is a desire that they hear of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, to go on funding something or somebody to help them physically is a great thing to do, but if they're not hearing of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, there's only one place they're going at the end of it. And therefore, I would say when it comes to giving, and I'm not just talking about money, but time and energies, and if I, you know, people have all sorts of gifts, how you're going to deploy those gifts... It's got to have a, an essential concern that they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, how is our Christian faith informing our giving? I don't think it is really. So does that help? Yeah, so sort of letting generosity discipline your vision, but then letting the gospel discipline how you choose to be generous. Um, Great. Should have asked you to answer that question. <laughs> letting generosity discipline your, 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 your heart, vision, yeah, your and vision. letting vision discipline your generosity. There we go. Really good. Thank um, you. That's a great. That's great. Thank you, Gwilym. You improved it. Um, <laughs> now, there's a question uh, again on giving. 
um, which might come back to me, he knows. Lots of international students are supported by parents. Would you encourage them to give? Um, I think you should be very thankful for your parents. And I actually think I would. I mean, it depends slightly on your parents um, and where they're standing, and they may be horrified. But I would imagine your parents, in their support of you, are anticipating that some of that which they're giving is used for life other than purely paying your academic fees. I mean, I would imagine some of it's towards your food. I hope so. Um, and, and maybe they allow you a little bit to enjoy yourself. Maybe not. Okay, maybe not. I'm really sorry if that's the case. You know, um, I'm happy to write to them on your behalf if you'd like. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, so there is within that a discretionary amount, I would imagine. Well, then, you know, what about taking from that discretionary amount and saying, okay, well, my friends may be off at, you know, Banana Rama or whatever it happens to be, nightclub. I don't know, I don't know if there's such a place, you know, but I'm, I'm going to actually, you know, take some of the discretionary amount and give with that. I, I don't think there's anything at all inappropriate about that. And if it was a Christian parent, they should be absolutely thrilled. Hmm. You know, something that my parents taught me from a young age was to give some of the money that they gave to me. Mm. Um, and I guess Christian parents will often want to do that. I think that's great. And I think also, you know, um, having a family project which you give to all of you and around the, you know, the kitchen table or whatever that you pray for. In fact, come this Christmas, we're going to have a particular appeal for... Um, Compassion UK, where you can adopt a child that is attached to a church elsewhere and they will hear the gospel. And, and I think that's going to be a great appeal. I'm really looking forward to it. Sorry to start. It's only 47 weeks till Christmas. Uh, just, so, just to let you know, we're on it there. Put up the tree. Thank you so much.